Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Haley Wooden. Later on, we discuss new research that suggests properly pricing environmental risk can actually make environmental disasters less likely. And we're once again looking to recognize BC's outstanding entrepreneurs, executives, managers, and professionals in public, private, and nonprofit sectors who are ahead of their time here at BIV. Nominations for our 2018 40 Under 40 Awards close July 30th. So visit BIV.com slash events for details on that. And a wide range of innovative, disruptive technologies are making payments and transactions easier for businesses. On September 13th, BIV's FinTech panel will look at how small and medium-sized businesses can make informed decisions in this new landscape. Tickets and information are available at BIV.com events. And coming up, the chief economist from CPA Canada assesses how businesses feel about our competitiveness. More than two-thirds of Canadian business leaders believe Canada is less competitive than we were a year ago and that we're a less competitive place to invest and do business compared to the United States. CPA Canada's Business Monitor surveys professional accountants in leadership positions, and Francis Fong is the organization's chief economist. He joins us on the line from Ottawa today with insight into the Monitor's second quarter results. Francis, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We've been hearing for some time, Francis, that Canada is a relatively uncompetitive territory for things like investment and uh, and conducting business. What what's at the heart of this? Well, it's interesting. I mean, quite a lot's happened in the last year, hasn't it? Uh, like the U.S. passed a a fairly sizable tax reform uh, bill. Contentious as it was, you know, there was quite a few elements uh, of things in there. Uh, related to lowering corporate tax rates, um, a more generous tax rate on new investment, uh, trying to bring back investment dollars into America. A lot of those things kind of put countries that would be considered largely direct competitors to the United States, Canada obviously being uh, chief among them, uh, on notice that, hey, you know, whatever whatever competitive advantage you thought you had, like, you know, Canada has enjoyed a, a corporate tax advantage uh, for quite a number of years. But still, we had this this idea that, you know, maybe we are really that competitive despite that. So now that we, you know, that that tax advantage has been completely eliminated, we're on notice. You know, like, mm-hmm. are we really as competitive as we used to think we are? Mm. Mm-hmm. And how much, Francis, is, say, trade uncertainty, Canada's relationship with the U.S. perhaps being threatened? How heavily is that weighing on on business leaders' minds? Absolutely. I, I think that's kind of a second whammy, if you can call it, in this double whammy. I mean, tax uh, a tax advantage or disadvantage is one thing, but trade is obviously the far more dominating aspect of the current uncertainty we're facing. I mean, we've already been hit with, with one round of tariffs. That has uh, kind of yet to, to, to materialize in a, in a very dramatic way, I think, uh, because they are relatively limited, but we are also looking down the barrel of potentially auto tariffs ahead of the next round of NAFTA renegotiations. Mm. President Trump has already indicated that he's waiting until after the midterm elections in October to, to, to reignite those conversations. But that is now on the table. And the impact of that is far, far greater than, than what you, could, you would consider for steel and, and aluminum tariffs. So if that does eventually come online, it is very possible that Canada could be pushed uh, into its next recession. 
So you layer that potential risk or general uncertainty, as it were, uh, on top of what's going on with tax. And yeah, Canada does, doesn't, you know, it, it's, it's not looking great for Canadians. And uh, bear in mind, you know, trade protectionism is not exclusive to, to America either. I mean, rising populism in many European countries uh, have called free trade into question. The recent Italian elections, for example, uh, they elected uh, or they, they, they formed a government that was made up of populist parties that also don't have a favorable view of free trade. So we are seeing this rising tide of protectionism and Canada being a small open economy. One third exports, 75% of our exports go to the U.S. Uh, 20, uh, Europe, obviously, being another big trading partner as well. You know, these are these are not kind of optimistic things to be looking down the barrel of as a business leader. Yeah. So, so is the the research telling you that uh, for an investor, an investor right now who wants to start a business or acquire a business, that really what you have to do is examine your domestic market, and because you you can't bank on the benefits of trade in the in the way that you could have say I don't know two three four years ago. Well, you know what I think is most interesting about those results and in kind of answering that question is this dichotomy between how optimistic business leaders are about the economy and how optimistic they are about their own businesses. Still, you know, despite the fact that that confidence fell quite significantly over the past year about the economy, business leaders are still fairly confident about their own domestic business. And I think that's a reflection of the fact that in spite of all these things we're talking about, trade, tax, whatever the case may be, the domestic economy is still quite resilient. You know, yeah. we had one of the best growth rates uh, in 2017 we've had in years. The unemployment rate is at a 40-year low where it's still hovering. You know, the, the, the Bank of Canada is confident enough in the domestic economy to have raised rates four times in the last year. Like, there are good things to be confident about domestically. But I think what the results of this, of this survey are indicating is Listen, we know this. We know we're confident about the, the coming year. What we're not confident about is what's happening politically, what's happening kind of broadly, economically speaking. You know, those are the big things that we need to be worried about. So it's, it's uh, from an investor perspective, it's about how do you look at a, 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 an individual company's kind of individual uh, performance while keeping in mind that there are things that we should be worried about. Mm -hmm. The the latest results do show that that optimism is slowly eroding and pessimism is on the rise. And I'm curious how business leaders are maybe making decisions differently today than they were a year ago. You know what? I think that's a that's a tough question to answer. And I think I think the challenge for them is is I don't know if we quite know the answer to how all of this uncertainty plays out. You know, like we, we were. I think, you know, if we, if we even just scroll back the clock a few months ago, people were fairly confident that NAFTA could have been renegotiated. You know, there, the, uh, many uh, people or observers were looking at it as an opportunity to update some of the pieces of the, of the, of the trade deal that were a bit antiquated. So there, there was, at one point, we were confident about all these things, but clearly there's, there's still a lot of uncertainty because we're dealing with a, a very unpredictable uh, negotiating partner on the tax side. You know, we know that the federal government is looking at this. The finance minister has indicated, yes, we're looking at this at this competitiveness issue, and they have yet to release this report they've referred to that where they've going to, they're going to conduct some analysis around how uh, the U.S. tax reform effort was impacting Canada. So there's clearly things being done, and I think that, in a way, makes it worse because for a business leader, well, what do I do with that? Like, do I wait? 
Do I wait and see how this all comes out? Do I start making plans in the immediate term? I, I mean, I guess the challenge is your reaction, your business reaction to something as significant as, as uh, the falling through of, of NAFTA or you know, a potential tax disadvantage, those decisions are quite big. So I suspect businesses are, are, are wary about what's, what's out there, but I don't know if they're necessarily kind of investing dollars in, let's say, moving to the United States. I, I suspect at this point, it's still a conversation that's being had, mm-hmm. but the longer we wait, the more solid those conversations become. And I that's mean- the worry. Yeah. I mean, you're in Ottawa today and, and, uh, you know, the prime minister has chosen, um, around any kind of cabinet shuffle to maintain the status quo around his senior, uh, ministers, particularly, you know, Bill Morneau and Christian Freeland, who have these two titles of, uh, the economic and trade portfolios, uh, that are so important to us. Uh, and yet everything seems to point to the idea that there need to be policy shifts of some sort in Canada in order to restore, if not an advantage, then at least something approaching parity in order to induce this kind of investment. What do you think are the, are the policy prerogatives here now uh, for, well, for I, this government? Well, I, I, think, I think that, that you, kind of, you kind of hit the nail on the head. The cabinet shuffle is, is they're, they're trying to cover all their bases. The fact that Christy Freeland and, and, uh, and uh, Bill Morneau are still in their files seems to indicate that there is this hope that the status quo still gets maintained. After it gets renegotiated, you know, this whole tax uh, situation maybe sorts itself out. Maybe they'll take some, a few actions to address it, and and uh, and that'll be that. But on the same token, we have this new uh, Minister of Trade Diversification, whose mm-hmm. sole job it is to try to promote businesses in Canada to, to, to go abroad. Now, that, <laughs> that's that been a 40-year initiative since the first Trudeau to expand to places like China. That we've seen relatively limited success of that so far. Um, so I think that's going to be an ongoing challenge simply because of geography, not, not necessarily because of a lack of will. Uh, but I think the, the, the fact that there is now this post or this explicit post is indicative uh, of the fact that this government wants this, uh, wants to make sure that, hey, if things don't go our way, we need to have some sort of backup plan. Yeah. The only thing is, as you, you would know, uh, you know, you say it's a 40 year, uh, 40 year effort. <laughs> uh, it's probably another 20 years before you really see materially the, the kind of shift in the economy where we have that diversity. Absolutely. Like we're talking about, uh, changing our fundamental connections from north, south to east, west. Like yeah. We're talking about, uh, physical infrastructure. I mean, we're having trouble getting pipelines up to, to try to service the, the Asian market. So there's, there are quite a number of challenges in doing that, which is, you know, again, like geography is not an easy thing to address. So it's, it's, um, it's a tough nut to crack, but I at least appreciate that they're, they're trying to do that because the reality is that we are facing a very difficult situation right now. And, and there's, it's, it's very difficult to see a clear way out outside of taking actions like this. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier, Francis, that the fact that the Bank of Canada is a rising rates now is indicative of the fact that we have had a strong economy nationally. But of course, it's also sparked concern about what this means for the average Canadian consumer. How concerned are businesses about rising rates and what that may mean for their consumers and their clients? Very significantly. Actually, the results do show quite a number of business leaders concerned about that. And and there's no doubt that it's the, the largest kind of domestic risk that we're facing today. And, and even the Bank of Canada has acknowledged that. If you look at the research they put out uh, over the past few years, 
at least one major report every year has looked at the impact of of, uh, of rising interest rates on on uh, on household debt or mortgage affordability. So they're clearly concerned about it, which is why I think they've been moving so slowly. I mean, we've had f- four rate hikes does sound like quite a lot, and it is a lot, but it has happened over the course of a year, and that's off of, a, of an extremely low, low level. Uh, but, but I suspect we're going to see continued rate increases, and that's going to happen over a very, very prolonged period of time, precisely because they're concerned about that affordability issue. The confidence that the businesses have uh, I wonder about that, given that we are really toward, uh, we're into almost a full decade now of growth, not substantial growth, you know, the 2%, 3% growth, which is still healthy, but not wildly so. Uh, do do business leaders start, and, and, and are, there's a research from your group indicating that there is also just this uh, expectation that perhaps, you know, perhaps things are going to slow down in about a year and a half. I think that definitely feeds into it. I mean, if you look historically, we do have or we have had a recession or slowdown or what have you roughly every 10 years or 10 years out of the last one. So technically we are due. I mean, that being said, you know, I could call myself kind of tied to the data in that regard. I think you need to see something in the cards for there to be worry in that regard. I mean, that's just me as a business leader. Uh, you're not looking at the economy, the economic data every single day. Uh, you, you're going to be looking at the bigger trends and you're going to be looking at issues like household debt and, and trade and those kinds of issues. And those are scary. For me, I think I would want to see something a little bit more substantive before mm-hmm. I started to worry about the next recession. Um, for me, trade is obviously the big one, uh, because like I said earlier, Ultimately, if, they, if, if the Trump administration decides to go, go ahead with these auto tariffs, that actually could push us into recession. But from a debt perspective or, or, or things of that nature, it is not the evidence that, that, that I'm seeing so far that would indicate that a recession is, is or at least a, a domestically driven recession is, is in the cards anytime soon. Mm. Francis, as always, a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to you both. That's Francis Fong, Chief Economist at CPA Canada. New research suggests that pricing environmental risk makes environmental disasters less likely. Haley and Tyler Orton are going to speak to Canada's Ecofiscal Commission next. Properly pricing risk, getting the incentives right, can actually make environmental disasters less likely. However, what we have in place isn't always enough. New research from Canada's Ecofiscal Commission looks at where some of the liability gaps exist in our provincial and national systems and what can be done to ensure taxpayers alone aren't left to cover the costs of any environmental damage. The report comes a few days after the fifth anniversary of Lac Mégantique in Quebec and ahead of the fourth anniversary of BC's Mount Polly tailings dam rupture. Joining us on the line from Ottawa to talk more about the report and its findings is Jason Dion, lead researcher at the Ecofiscal Commission and the lead on the report, which is titled Responsible Risk, How Putting a Price on Environmental Risk Makes Disasters Less Likely. Jason, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Generally speaking, how do we price environmental risk in Canada? So uh, I think it's important to take a step back and just sort of remind ourselves that a lot of the pillars of our economy that drive our prosperity, so things like resource extraction, manufacturing, and transportation of goods can come with risk to the environment. Mm -hmm. Now, most of the time, this happens with this stuff goes on without incident. 
But when things do go wrong, the environmental damage and economic costs can be pretty significant. And in some cases, society, rather than those that are responsible, can end up paying the bill for it. And that can occur for a number of reasons that we detail in our report. Uh, so you can have liability gaps. So uh, companies' liability for environmental damage might be capped at a certain level. It might not be liable for certain types of damage, but a really important one is bankruptcy. So if a company that's caused environmental damage goes under, its costs can end up falling to society. So those costs can include things like taxpayer-funded cleanup, health impacts and loss of life, and the lost environmental benefits we enjoy from clean air, water, and soil. Why do we have tools like you just mentioned in place to begin with? Of course, taxpayers would wonder why would any potential damages be capped to begin with? Well, I think in many cases, it's a matter of sort of sharing risks and sort of recognizing that, you know, if we had unlimited liability, when there are the, when there is a possibility of environmental damage, we might not get economic activity. So that, that potential can paralyze economic activity. So, you know, there, there can be good arguments for sharing risk in some of those ways. The catch is that they can make risks worse. So when a company knows that it might not bear the cost of environmental damage it caused, it has less incentive to reduce risk. So I think we have those liability rules in place for a reason, but because they can come with gaps, we want to plug those gaps. And there's a tool called financial assurance we can use to plug those gaps. Well, I, if we want to bring it back to the West Coast here, one thing that's still top of mind for British Columbians is the Mount Polly disaster. And I, I do recall the province was at the forefront of this, you know, uh, taking a lot of those calls, answering a lot of those questions. What role maybe does the federal government play with regards to this particular issue? So I, I think when it comes to the federal government, you know, there's a number of environmental acts federally that they enforce. There's a number of provincial ones as well. But by and large, you know, mining is a, a provincial jurisdiction. It's natural resources. So I think in many cases, the, the provinces are in the, uh, are in the driver's seat when it comes to this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And in the report, you do take a deeper dive into, for example, BC's mining sector and the strength of our regime. How does what we have here compare to, say, other jurisdictions in Canada? So yeah, in our, in our report, which is kind of focused on environmental risk more broadly, uh, we, we did take a nice close look at the mining sector. And so to do that, we looked at how uh, financial assurance policy is done in five different Canadian jurisdictions, and BC was one of them. So you know, just to sort of explain, financial assurance is when a company is required to promise or commit funds against their environmental risks. So the bigger the risk, the more they commit. And this is that tool that can, that can plug these holes in our liability gaps. So we took a look at uh, environmental risk in the mining sector across these five jurisdictions and how they handle it, how they regulate it using this tool, financial assurance. And so we can think of that there's kind of two main types of risk in the, in the mining sector. Well, there are others, but there are two that we focused on. The first is the risk of a mine not getting cleaned up at the end of its life. And we find here that in BC and other provinces, they do use financial assurance to address this risk. Companies have to put up funds in one way or another to make sure that the mine is going to get cleaned up at the end of its life. But this other risk, the risk of a mining disaster, something like what happened at Mount Polly, is not something that we use financial assurance for. And we find that that's a pretty big gap, both in British Columbia and in Canada more broadly. I also wonder this, and we may go off on a bit of a tangent here, but how much is climate change coming into, I guess, focus for a lot of these situations here? You know, there's different situations that could actually be caused by climate change. I'm wondering if that's becoming a consideration at all. Yeah, I mean, I think it is important to remember that that is a kind of risk multiplier. 
that you know certain stressors on a tailings dam, like a heavy precipitation event, can can increase the risk of, of a possible failure. And climate change, to the extent it's driving increased extreme weather, can can multiply those risks. So I think that is something that's important to weigh going forward. You mentioned sort of the uh, the wild card scenario if there's a bankruptcy of a company coupled with, say, uh, an environmental disaster or event that that company would have at least in part been liable for. At this stage, what does happen? What do the people behind a company that has gone bankrupt owe, if anything? So if now it's important to remember that a, a company that you know, poses environmental risk Faces a, we, we control these risks in a lot of different ways. They face a lot of regulations around how they manage, you know, tailings dams and the risk of an, an environmental harm. We have these liability laws that I mentioned, but it's, it's this one other tool where we find there are some gaps. So when it comes to the risk of disasters, if a, mining, if a mine tailings dam failure like Mount Pauly were to occur and the company was bankrupted as a result of it, which didn't happen at Mount Pauly, but if that were to happen, then the company would file bankruptcy or go into insolvency and the federal government or provincial government would only have a claim on the assets that remained after the creditors had been paid out. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this is kind of that tangent that you mentioned that there's actually a case winding its way through the Supreme Court right now uh, called Redwater that's about orphaned and abandoned oil and gas wells in Alberta that has really big and broad significance about how we're going to handle these environmental liabilities in bankruptcy proceedings in Canada. So that decision is expected, uh, I think, later this summer or early in the fall. And if the uh, uh, Supreme Court upholds the uh, Court of Appeals decision in Alberta, it will really underscore even more the importance of these financial assurance tools because government can't necessarily count on having a high priority claim on a bankrupt company's assets. Yeah, Canada, a bit of a unique nation here, very small population, large land mass, and we're very much dependent on the natural resources sector for our economy here. So I am wondering, I mean, are, are you guys looking to other jurisdictions to see what's going on in other places? Are we kind of maybe, I, I guess, the uh, the precursor model for a lot of ju- other jurisdictions that are looking at what you know their governments should be doing with regards to these liability issues? So yeah, we we did take a bit of a look internationally. So in Australia, there's an interesting model when it comes to this risk of mines not getting cleaned up at the end of their life, where the mining companies pool together to make sure that if a company goes bankrupt and isn't able to honor its, its reclamation obligation, that there are funds there collectively that can be brought to bear against that cost. So that, that kind of pooling of risk is an interesting model, and it's one that we talk about in the report. But more broadly, that this risk of disasters, of, of mine tailings dam failures, is something that, that both in Canada and internationally, we don't really tend to apply this tool of financial assurance towards. And, and our report finds that by, by bringing this tool in, you can put a price on risk to the environment and create strong economic incentives that can give companies a, a motivation to find new ways to manage risk that other tools maybe can't do as well. Mm-hmm. I think it's clear in Canada, most companies, they have CSR policies they understand and are perhaps even okay with taking over a certain amount of liability. But as you said, Jason, if it's 100% liability, that could stall economic activity. Sometimes it's a matter of not having enough clarity around policies too. How do you think industry would react to some of the recommendations you're making in this report? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right to highlight the, the corporate social responsibility angle. And, you know, companies don't want to cause a disaster, of course. You know, there's, there's cost to their bottom line. There's cost to their reputation. It's in their interest. 
But what we're highlighting in this report is that in the context of liability gaps, these incentives might not be enough, and it's possible to strengthen them using financial assurance. And in terms of how companies might react, I mean, what we've really shown in the report is that there's a broad spectrum of things you can do with this tool of financial assurance. Some offer you greater benefits across reducing risk, creating those incentives. Others can kind of balance the, that need to, to foster economic activity and encourage investment a little bit better. So you can use the tools in different ways, but, but one way that you can really sort of implement it in a way that makes sense and is good for business and investment is to make it fair. So the more that when you put a price on risk, it's actually proportional to that specific company's risk, that specific operations risk, then not only is it fair in that the companies that pose a higher risk will pay a higher degree of financial assurance, but that's even better for incentives because then that those, are paying, those who are paying a higher cost will have incentive to reduce risk so they can lower their costs. And that's the way in which financial assurance can help align businesses' interests with the public interest. Mm-hmm. That fairness piece, uh, critical in NBC, based on your research on our financial assurance regime, is it always clear to, say, a company how exactly the risk is going to be priced and what kinds of tools may be applied? Yeah, I mean, I, I think overall that the, it, it's fair to say British Columbia's financial assurance is sort of in a, a transition stage. There was a report from the Auditor General uh, in 2016 that took a look at how it's applied in the mining sector and kind of highlighted some some gaps or sort of some things to consider and, and the, I, you know, the, the Ministry of, uh, of Mines, uh, Energy, Mines and Petroleum Resources is, is taking a look at different ways that they could approach financial assurance. Uh, so I think it's sort of this, this uh, a matter of taking a look at what's there in place now, how other jurisdictions are doing it, and how they want to apply financial assurance in a way that can create a, that desired balance across risk reduction and environmental protection on the one hand and economic activity on the other. It's always about achieving that balance. Jason, thanks so much for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. That's Jason Dion, lead researcher at Canada's Ecofiscal Commission. And that's it for our show today. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe and find past episodes on iTunes, Stitchers, and BIV.com, where you can also find all our stories and the latest business news. 